Uh, raise your hand if you know what an IT band is. IT band. All right, all right. I was, uh, after all of our long days today, I was walking by the pool and heard, I think, I think after you turn a certain age, you start to know what an IT band is. You're like, uh, like every part of your body starts to, starts to hurt after a hike or a rafting, and you're like, I gotta stretch out my IT. The IT band, you'll learn what it is one day. Just wait. You'll learn. It's the part, I think it's this thing right here that, that starts, is kind of everything holds together through that, right? What? It's not a bunch of, it's not a bunch of computers. No, it's not a bunch of computers in a database. That would, that would make sense though. All right, it was a long day. I've been told, I've been told uh, everybody's tired. I've seen lots of yawns and I was like, yeah, me too. Uh, I, I, went, I went rafting and I'm tired, uh, but we're gonna hang in there. We're gonna do this thing together. Uh, let's uh, let's let's go before the Lord before we read His Word. Uh, Father, we we thank you for your Son, who we just sang about. We thank you for the grace that's found in the cross. We thank you for the new life that your Spirit gives graciously to us. We thank you for the Word that you have um, guided us into. We thank you that it speaks words of truth two thousand years ago and still today to our lives and our place. Um, that it is. Uh, a word that reaches all generations around the world. It's a word of hope. It's a reward. It's a word of, of salvation. And uh, I pray that tonight you would speak through this word to a needy people. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. I told you uh, John 15 was in the middle of this text, or in the middle of this chunk of text that we're looking at, and that we are now in the middle of our week. And here we are. We're back at John 15. I've read the first five verses for us. On Sunday night, but tonight we're going to go all the way through verse 17. John 15, 1 through 17. Here we go. See ya. Did I put it in here? Oops, did I not put it in here? There we go. I put it in wrong. All right, here we go. John 15, 1 through 17. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown to the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, and you are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. 
These things I command you so that you will love one another. It's the reading of God's Word. Uh, one of the, my favorite things to do with my kids uh, is play games with them. Uh, maybe you saw us in the, the cafeteria yesterday. We play Catan together. We play uh, a lot, lots of games. I was, I was going to start naming them, but you wouldn't have heard of any of them. Uh, we like to play games together. And When my kids start losing in this game, they start to make up their own rules. Maybe we do this too. And, uh, and so, when I notice them start making up their own rules, I go, okay, is that how you want to play? Then I'll start making up my rules too. And within, you know, 20 seconds, the game's just totally chaotic. Because there needs to be rules and structure for the game to be enjoyable for everybody, right? Um, they want to play by their own rules. Well, me too. And then we realize we don't. And so, okay, well, let's, let's play by the rules, I guess, Daddy. Um, and, and then I always beat them. Um, and that's the best part. Yeah, thank you. I know. Beat three-year-olds. Yeah. It's, it helps me sleep at night. Uh, I beat my four-year-old today. And the game gets good take. Yes. It gets very good. Yes. I beat. Yes. Take it. All right. So what we're going to see in this passage... What we're going to see in this passage is uh, that there is this game called life, and there are rules or commands, and there is actually a way for you to live your life. There's actually a way for me to live my life. Did you know that? And when you live in alignment with that way of living, what's Jesus say? You find joy. I tell you these things so that my joy may be in you and that you will be full of joy. But when you make up your own rules, when you want to play this game called life on your own terms, you find chaos and destruction. That's what we're going to see tonight. And that way of living is found in his commands, and we're going to dive into what that is. Um, But that there is an actual designer who has designed your life and your body to be lived a particular way for your enjoyment. And just as if my kids and I neglect the rules of the game, it leads to chaos. So too you. When you reject the rules, commands, God has given to us graciously. It leads to death of body and soul. Um, I often talk with college students, and here's, I forget what I told you they say a lot last time. Here's another thing they say a lot. I'm just not experiencing any joy in my relationship with God. I don't even see the meaning of it. They start, they, that's kind of where it starts, and then it goes into, I don't even know if God's real. And they are this close to just punting this whole Christianity thing. And as I sit there with them and through conversation, nine times out of ten, what I find is going on in this person's life is an unrepentant sin that they do not want to talk about, that they do not want to get rid of. They want to play by their rules, and they want joy with God. And they're like branches falling on the ground, withering. Because that's what happens. But God wants our joy, and he intends to give it to us. Um, we're going to look at three points tonight. Thinking wrongly about our obedience, thinking properly about our obedience, and bearing fruit from our obedience. All right? That's the three points. Thinking wrongly about our obedience, thinking properly about our obedience, and bearing fruit in our views. Here's the charts. 
Ha, I got a lot of charts tonight. If you could turn that light off, that'd be wonderful. Um, here we go. Here's what I want to walk through. Thinking wrongly about our obedience. This is our state of nature. You're born into this state. Um, this is going to be, a lot of this is going to be repetitive that Patrick and others have, have talked about. Um, this is really small font, my bad. But in our state of nature, we are deserving of the wrath of God. We are enslaved to our sin, to ourself. We have no other option. And that we are eternally separated from God. That's state of nature. That's what we're born into. But by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, we are united with Christ and we are new creations, as Paul just just, just uh, prayed about. We're new creations. We're justified. We're forgiven by God and we're imputed to us the righteousness of Christ. And so there's no longer any penalty for your sin. We are sanctified. We're freed from the power of sin. We're given a new power. We're no longer a slave of sin, but we're a slave of righteousness. And that we are to be glorified. And we don't, I think maybe uh, someone's talking about that this week. I will be. But we're glorified. We will now share an eternal communion with God, sitting, enjoying His presence eternally, forever. All right? It's a state of nature. Thanks be to God. State of grace. Union with Christ. We're new creations. Uh, there's all sorts of passages I could give. I could give. Um, here's one I wanted to focus on. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is who? Is it from yourself? Is the new creation from you? No, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled to himself. All right, so we're new creations. But here's what happens. There's two paths. You're going to talk about this in your small groups tonight. There's two paths to your to, to disbelief. First path is when you know, you believe that you're justified, you're forgiven by God, that Christ has taken up the penalty of your sin, but you do believe that you receive a new power over your sin. So this is what life starts to look like. This is the result of our disbelief. So if we do not believe that we are sanctified and have received this new power, we start to live in our sin. And we then start to fear the wrath of God, and we start to fear that we'll forever, eternally be separated from Him. Um, there's a man named uh, Richard Loveless. He was the mentor, one mentor of Tim Keller. He's a good, a good, good smart guy. Uh, wrote a book that is one of, when he died a couple years ago, Tim Keller said, this is a book that changed my whole ministry. And so I, and I bought the ministry and I read the book. It's called uh, Dynamics of Spiritual Renewal. And this is what he says. There is a deep connection between our understanding of justification and our experience of sanctification. On the one hand, the conscience cannot accept justification without sanctification. Assurance of justification which penetrates and cleanses our consciousness of guilt is impossible to obtain without an awareness that we are in some measure committed to progress in our spiritual growth. This assurance, or our justification, increases as we move forward in sanctification and weakens or vanishes as we move away in disobedience from the God of holiness. When we attempt to claim justification without a clear commitment to sanctification or obedience to his commands, our conscience com becomes outraged, and we usually repress this from our awareness, and the resulting anxiety and insecurity create compulsive egocentric drives which aggravate the flesh instead of mortify it. Thus, the Protestant disease of cheap grace can produce some of the most selfish, contentious people on earth. So this is what happens. When you don't believe in, that you have a new power helping you obey, you start to fear the wrath of God and that fear that you'll be eternally separated. And you can't stand that fear, and so you repress it. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to talk to you anymore, God. 
I just want to get you out of my head. You repress it. And that makes you anxious. That makes you anxious. And what is your anxiety? You don't want to feel anxious. And so you go right back to the behavior that you're enslaved to. And it gets bigger and bigger. And you fear more and more. And you repress more and more. And you get more and more anxious. Right? That is the trap of sin. This is why the New Testament, on several occasions, makes it clear that cheap grace, the attempt to be justified through faith in Christ without commitment to sanctification, is illegitimate and impossible. On the other end, here's our union with Christ. The other side of the disbelief is that Christ has given us a new power, and if used properly, we might get out of the penalty. And so we're, we believe that we're free from the power of sin, and we obey, we obey, we obey, but we think we're obeying to earn. We're doing it because we're afraid. I just don't want the wrath of God, and I don't want to be eternally separated. I just want to go to heaven. And so we obey, and that fear then drives another form of anxiety, and that anxiety then drives us to do more works to try to help the fear go away. This is what he says, an insecurity of our justification creates, a, this is kind of fancy language, sorry, creates a luxuriant overgrowth of religious flesh as we attempt to build a holiness formidable enough to pacify our consciousness and quiet our sense of alienation from God. Do you hear what he's saying? I'm so afraid that I'm alienated from God. If I could just do more and obey more and obey better and do more and obey more and obey better, then maybe all that fear will go away. And we're stuck, we're enslaved. Which is why the church, for those who are called, justified, sanctified, and glorified, you cannot have one without the other. There's two ways of thinking wrongly about our obedience to God's commands. Those are them. So how do we think properly about them? i got a lot of passages to go through. Um, and here's why. Because Jesus taught something here that penetrated the, the very mission and ministry of John. And as John went on to write a lot in the Bible, he went on to write 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, he went to write and was, was basked in the glory and wrote in the revelation for us. Um, there's so much, and you see repetitive themes that come from this teaching right here in John 15. So I want to read just a handful of, of verses that helps us think properly about our obedience, helps us think properly about obeying God's commands. We see right here, um, here we go, in John 14, this is something that we read the other night. What's he say? What's he, what does Jesus say? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands. Oh, wrong one. Uh, here we go, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And then verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Jesus said, this is what I was referring to, the other that I talked about the other night, in John 14, the chapter earlier, 21 and 23, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. If anyone loves me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Jesus makes a really big deal of obeying him. And this is exactly what John reiterates time and time again in his letters. I want to give just a flavor for it. In 1 John 3.24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. 1 John 5, 2 and 3, by this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Someone prayed this the other night, and I love this passage, this part. And his commandments are not burdensome. 
Revelation 12. So there's, you're brought into this, this uh, apocalyptic scene and the dragon, the devil is coming after the woman and her son and, she, and he can't get her. And so who does she turn, where, who does the devil turn his attention towards? Because he couldn't get the woman, he went off to make war with the rest of her offspring, aka Christians. And how does John describe Christians? Those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Um, just say, I recognize some of you are like, whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus, settle down with this legalism. Goodness gracious. Hold the phone. Um, so let's talk about this. I mean, I want to return to a really great analogy, Mickey Mouse. Um, you know, I actually was thinking about this. Uh, you might get home and your parents are going to be like, man, what'd you learn this week? Uh, I'm not sure. Something about Mickey Mouse. That might be one of the first things that uh, comes to your mind, and that's all right. Uh, I hope that uh, this analogy in Mickey Mouse, we're in Christ, and now we're learning to wave and talk like Mickey. Okay, imagine putting a Mickey Mouse costume on and going up. Who went hiking today? Imagine hiking in the Mickey costume. Is that what you're supposed to do in the Mickey costume? No. No, that's crazy, right? Uh, feel a little out of whack, uh, right? So what's, what is Mickey Mouse supposed to do? It's supposed to stand on a float and parade around and wave people. So when you put on Mickey and you walk up the mountain, it's not going to feel like, you know, oh, I'm not, do, just not doing this right. I'm not feeling like Mickey right now. This isn't, I just don't feel like this is what Mickey ought to be doing. Okay, where's my float? Where's my wave? Um, right? So when we obey the commands of Jesus, we're not doing it to earn. We're not doing it to repress fear, to silence anxiety. We're doing it because it's uniting us to who we truly are. Who we truly are. Right? Like, this is why camps are great. Why do most of you, I would, I would assume, feel so full of life right now? Because everything about this week is so intentionally structured to be so different from the rest of your life. It is to turn your heart and worship toward God and to obey and to love the people around you. And when you do those things, don't you feel more alive? Do you feel more alive this week or when you binge watch shows and play video games eight hours a day? Which week do you feel more alive? Right? I'm not saying that you're not sinning this week. That's impossible. But I'm saying that you're, you're living as God's created you to, to live. In some small way, you're getting a glimpse of this this week. So Jesus is not a legalist. He wants you to live, and he wants you to be full of joy. So how do we do that? Um, we, we obey his commands. So let me think through, let's think through together what are his commands. First, I read a commentator that said, what are the commands? He said, well, more is at stake than Jesus' ethical commands. But the one who loves Jesus will observe is not simply an array of discrete ethics and imperatives, but the entire revelation from the Father revealed to us in Christ by the Spirit. So what does that mean? A few verses. And this is the commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. We believe that God came 
As we just sang about, I love that song, that he took on the robe of poverty, that God came and dwelt with his people, and he died the death that we deserve, and he defeated death through his miraculous resurrection, and that he ascended with power to the Father, and that he's actively reigning and ruling today, and that his spirit dwells with his people and is at work in this world, bearing witness to that revelation, that the work of Christ is bringing redemption in you and around you, as extending his love in you, penetrating every part of your life, and it's flowing out of you that you extend love to others, giving hope, growing in faith, growing in self-control, growing in patience, etc., etc., and that one day, one day, the story, the story of Jesus being the Son of God is that he will come back. He will make all things new. And so the first thing to see is that obeying the commands is obeying and living in the story of God. It's living your life through this lens of redemption. What does that mean? It means that you see the good and the dignity of others. You see the beauty in this world. You extend grace to others. You live with gratitude and awe. But you also live with grief. And you live with sadness that the world is not how it ought to be. It means you understand the people you are around with are both beautiful saints and marred as sinners. And that changes the way that you think about relationships with them. That this world is wonderful and amazing, but death and despair and sin and sickness is always creeping around the corner. That God is at work renewing all things through the death and the resurrection of his son. That's one way we think about obeying God's command. We live in his story of redemption. And you're going to flesh out what that looks like in a practical way in your small groups. Second, elsewhere we see in John's epistles that obedience is closely tied to fighting sin. And when you do sin, is having a heart of repentance and faith. I want to read a couple verses here. No one who abides in him keeps on or makes a practice of sinning. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. This is, this is a... This is saying what you think it's saying. If you're, if you're actively living a life of complete denial and disobedience, without a care in the world to God, without an ounce of repentance, then I want to plead with you tonight to come home. Come play the game by the rules. Come, come out of the chaos and darkness and death. Come experience the table of grace. Come experience the fullness of joy. Start to live with God, abiding in his love through our obedience. And if you feel like, whoa, John holds the tension here. So he says this, if you, no one makes, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. But he also says this, Yet if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. 
So what's going on? Um, here's an analogy I like to use. Imagine if you pinched a dead person. Would they feel it? Would they feel Okay, no. Why? Why? Because they're dead. All right. But if I come and what's your name? So if I come, I'm not going to pinch you. Man, he's like, there you go. I got you. Uh, if I come and pinch James, you're alive right now. If I come and pinch you, you're going to feel it. Right? Okay. So think of the pinch. Think of the pinch as sin. If, if, if someone who is dead, who's not been reborn, is in sin, making a practice of sin, they're constantly being pinched, and they don't care, because they don't feel it. But if you've been born again, and you're sinning, you feel it, and you hate it. We turn from it, and you repent, and you confess, as we've just spent some time doing. I don't like how that feels. This is what John's getting up here. So on one end, if you're making a practice of sin, if you're complete living, uh, completely living in disobedience, the seed of God is not in you. And on the other end, if you claim you have no sin, the seed of God is not in you. All right. Third, what does he mean by obeying the commands? Well, what are the commands? Well, we've got to remember that Jesus was a Jew. And so one of the things that's coming to his mind is the Torah of the first five books of the Bible, full of a lot of laws. How many commandments are in the Torah? Anyone have a guess? You're like, you're like over here, I'm just count this up. No, I'm not going to make fun of you. 600, there's 613 commands in the Torah. I'm glad you didn't guess. But they're summarized in what? The Ten Commandments. They're summarized in the Ten Commandments. And those two, those Ten Commandments are summarized into two commandments by Jesus. You split up the Ten Commandments. And you summarize them as love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what? Love your neighbor as yourself. So you could put the Ten Commandments and split them up. First five, second five. And the love your Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And all the other 603 commandments fall under the umbrella of the Ten Commandments. And all the commandments and the imperatives in Jesus' teaching and his parables and Paul's teaching and Peter's teaching fall under these two big umbrellas. Loving the Lord with all you have and loving your neighbor as yourself. So that's what he means also by obeying God's commandments. Having no other God before him. And when you notice that you're worshiping something like the approval of your friends, putting your hope in something like my college experience, then I'm going to feel happy if I choose the right place. Then I'm going to feel satisfied. That's going to save me. Making carved idols. Taking the Lord's name in vain. Remembering the Sabbath. Keeping it holy. Honoring your parents. Maybe you're hating someone in your heart. Well, you know what? Loving your neighbor is not hating someone in your heart. Actually, it's loving even your enemy. Jesus takes the sixth commandment from, from the Torah. It says, You have heard, thou shalt not kill. And yet I say, anyone who has hate in his heart for his brother is murdering him. You've heard it said, and he takes the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Yet I say, anyone who looks lustfully at a woman has committed adultery already in his heart. These are the commandments. This is what's in mind. As we are Christians, we're experiencing the fullness of joy in our union with Christ. We're abiding in Him, drawing near to His love, obeying, looking to these commandments. These are the paths of life. These are the rules of the game. This leads to life. And lastly, 
this is, brings me to my last point. Um, obeying his commandments is actually explicitly laid out in this passage. I don't know if it caught this. This is my commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this. Someone laid down his life for his friends. So John says elsewhere, lots of the, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he's commanded us. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This brings me to my last point, bearing the fruit of love. But Jesus says here in our, in our passage in verse 16, so John 15, 16, what does he say? You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to do what? To go bear fruit. What's your mission in this world as Jesus' disciples? To go and bear fruit. To go and bear fruit. I want to go back to the image of the vine. Um, so, a vine is the branch is connected to the vine, the, the vine starts to bear fruit. Who's benefiting from that fruit? Is, is the fruit falling off and giving source and life to the vine? Is the branch benefiting from, from the fruit? Is it somehow like strengthening the branch? No. Who's benefiting from the fruit? Other people. Other people. If Francis Schaeffer, um, he is the founder of this place called Labrie, he could defend the Christian faith with the best of them. And here's what he says. If he knew more truth than anybody in the world, perhaps. Yet he says in one of his most famous books, we must never forget that the final apologetic, apologetic meaning a reason to believe in the evidence, the proof that Christianity is true, we must never forget that the final apologetic which Jesus gave his church is the observable love of Christians. He did not say that our final apologetic is having the most cleverly articulated set of truths that we communicate forcefully to our friends. So the final apologetic that Jesus gave us is the observable love of Christians. Your life and my life, the life of the Christian, obeying God's commands, is all about other people. We're bearing fruit. Not that we benefit from it, but that other people do. It's about bearing fruit for the other and this fruit is love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And love is relational. And love is other-centered. Love is looking at the other person and wanting their good, even at the cost of your own good. Love is dying to yourself so that others may live. And God is love. Right? This is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Jesus obeyed the command by laying his life down for his friends. The people who feel the pinch, who come to him not to earn anything, not out of fear, they come to him because they want to abide in his love and they know where it is. Jesus is the most other-centered person that ever walked this earth. 
He was obedient, thinking regarding our best intentions all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that you may live, that you may be full of joy. Get you in mind. Get you in mind. Get you in mind. Get you in mind. Get you in mind as he went to the cross, bearing the fruit of love, his life poured out so that you may live. Let's pray. God, we are people who often find ourselves in chaos, in darkness, and, and are full of destructive habits and full of destructive relationships. So, Lord, give us a heart of repentance. Help us turn our gaze towards you, who is the author and the perfecter of our salvation. Let us not leave this place and turn our attention to ourselves and our, and our will and our strength, but let us turn to you. Give us hearts that say sorry. Give us hearts that desire to walk in your ways. Give us a vision for the good life that you have for us in your commands. Give us hearts of love that your fruit might, might abide in us, that might be born within us. Give us eyes to see those around us who are hurting. Give us eyes to see the outcast, not the friend who's easy to like. Lord, help us be people of love that the world around us may observe it and want it. We need your help and we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.